Nice to see you. Yeah, nice to see you too. How are you? How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Um, it's just in spring in the Southern Hemisphere. So we've come through a couple of really tough months with the pandemic through winter. And now the North is going into their winter. So we're just coming out of it and feeling really positive. <laughs> yeah, your book is really inspirational. I was like, oh my God, so many things you have gone through. You know, so many things. How did you cope up with all this? I really can't understand. Um, it was really tough. As you've seen in the book, I had this huge tower moment at the end of 1999 with the ice skating accident. And it's like the universe pushes you. If you don't see the little signs that you need to do something or you need to change, shift your mind mindset or change your life, the universe brings down a huge tower to force you into a new direction. And it was... Um, when I went abroad and broadened my perspectives, that I really started coping with it to see that my stupid little town and my Africana culture where I come from isn't the whole world. Can you explain what is the meaning of white Africana? Like what is the difference? Like black, I thought it's just the people who are dark skinned are called Africans or Oh yes. The name Afrikaner um, is given to, you know, the, the white people in South Africa come from various backgrounds. It can be French, Dutch, German, Irish, anything. And then usually those that come from more of an English background or Irish background tend to form one group. And those that come more from a French, Dutch and German background formed a new language called Afrikaans because it was formed on the continent. Okay, so that is the difference. Yeah, <laughs> and they are like, um, usually they not all of them, it's not stereotype, but there's a large percentage of the Afrikaner people that are white supremacists and like the kind of thing that you saw okay. in, in the book. Yeah. So uh, I relate to the religious cult thing. I wouldn't call them like uh, very biblical or something. I like the line where you wrote that he threw his hypocritical hands up in the air, you know, like to pray. I've seen a lot of people like that in the churches and uh, religious groups. So uh, I wouldn't really call them uh, spiritual. I would call them a cult because there are a lot of yeah. Uh, who suffer through these things and I have seen women being preyed upon, you know, like uh, thinking yes. they're uh, having some kind of possession or something, but it's actually depression. So what was your experience? Being spiritual and being religious are two very different things. Um, religious, being religious is just, um, or religion is, in my opinion, organized superstition or an organized cult. Being spiritually something very different. But unfortunately, in a culture like the one that I was born into and raised in, we only have our religion. We haven't seen or experienced anything else. So you think that is right. Like I say, I think in the very first paragraph of my book, you're breastfed these things. You grow up on them. So it's all you know and you think it's right. And a lot of people that are born with very spiritual feelings um, have only that thing to cling to. And that is why religion is sometimes um, so disappointing because they seek 
to fill that void. And the only tool they have is their religion. And um, that, that can be a very devastating experience. Yeah. yeah. So when you travel to Thailand and Israel and when you saw like it's totally different, like all religions have the common theme, but they are like very uh, varied, you can say. So what was your experience when you saw it in a wider situation? You know what, when I was first introduced to Buddhism in Thailand, I was so surprised because everything that the Buddha taught uh, were exactly the same things that Jesus taught. Yeah. So I was like, wow, these two guys are both great spiritual leaders. They teach the same thing. They're against all this religiousness and rules and regulations, embracing love, humanity, compassion. And, um, you know, in a Christian tradition, all Buddhists are condemned to hell because they don't believe in Jesus. Yeah. And then... That is a big message of my book as well, you know, if you talk theoretically about another group of people, it's very easy. But once you see the first person of that kind and look into their eyes and connect and realize that this is a human being, how could I have those beliefs about them? But a lot of people prefer intentionally or unintentionally because of ignorance or whatever to keep people in a group and at a distance. So I think that's my message. Sit with someone completely different from yourself. Look into their eyes, listen to their story, connect with them. I think in Christianity, like every church thinks they are going to heaven. Whether it's like the Protestant or the Romans or the Seventh Day. I mean, all of them say this. They think that they are the only ones who will go and the rest of them will be damned to hell. That is the Exactly. That I have seen. I could relate to the things that you said. So then how did you heal yourself after the ice skating um, incident? Like you said, you had to go through surgery and everything. How would that be? You know, the surgery, these days, modern surgery is really fantastic. I didn't feel a thing. There was no pain until, like I said, when I started to recover and the bones started to reconnect and grow back. So the operation itself was really not a big deal for me. It was the recovery because I've got very sensitive skin and um, tissue. So I was swollen like a pumpkin. So I just looked bad for about three months and I had those terrible headaches. But apart from that, I didn't keep anything down. Good. Uh, what about uh, your experience, the two weeks experience you shared, uh, they were giving you electrocuting, like a kind of in that mental institution. What is that all about? Like? Okay, I think that was exactly because I've never dealt with that thing. It was unspeakable, this relationship that I had with Benjamin. Of course, it's not his real name. I, as you can see at the end of my book, I failed to um, find him. It was now the pandemic when I wrote my book, I wanted to go and look him up. We were not allowed to travel, I don't know where to find him. So I decided, okay, it's not his choice to be in my book. So let me give him also an alias. So um, I couldn't talk to anybody because even though the laws have been lifted, there was this um, law against mixed marriages. and It was actually called immoral immorality act so you're immoral if you love someone different from yourself even though the laws were lifted in 1985 um, it was 1991 it was still very much in people's hearts 
they protested against it. They thought that it was wrong to lift this law. I was still immoral in their eyes. So I couldn't talk to anybody. And it led to severe depression, mental illness, and um, yeah, it, 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 it wasn't nice. It wasn't a nice experience to be in the mental hospital now. <laughs> Are uh, the conditions what we see from outside in the mental hospital? Are women treated badly there? What is the condition? What did you see or experience? Um, do you mean afterwards? Yeah. Um, you know what? At that point, I was already pretty much. Uh, removed from society. I lived pretty much on my own. I went to work and went back. So there was already a lot of gossip about me and Benjamin. So I didn't really mix with anybody. Unfortunately, cultures in South Africa were and are still very separated. So I couldn't make a lot of friends on that side. Um, I hid a lot of things, even in subsequent relationships that I had. Um, I, I didn't tell them about what happened. Uh, there was one of the guys that heard a gossip story and I, about my relationship with Benjamin. And I feel like a traitor these days, but while I was in that situation, it was just to protect myself and stay alive. So I denied it. I told this guy, no, it's probably my ex that um, is spreading this rumor. I've never had any relations with a black man. So that was one of the things, even though I did it to protect myself after that incident with the rape, um, I felt like a traitor. And I think that also worked together with all the other things to cause the mental breakdown. Okay. Yes. Mm. It's very brave of you to come out of all that uh, experiences. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very hard because even like you, um, if you've you've read the book, obviously, and even nowadays, it was three or four years ago when I was living in that cottage with Alexander. People still have that same mindset yeah. when he came with that torch, and so I, I'm really afraid. Once um, I obviously think it's a message that needs to be spread, um, especially now with the Black Lives Matters and. Um, I, I just saw the presidential debate yesterday between Joe Biden and President Trump. And it was crazy the way he was defending these guys. What are they called? Um, what boys? Some sort of yeah. white supremacist group. The yeah. brave boys and some boys, I don't know. I forgot the name now. Um, people really need to hear this message. They really need to. And especially for black people, I think they think that nobody really understands. But I think there are more people like myself who have lived this kind of life that we really understand. We are not journalists, we are not politicians, we don't make a huge impact. But in our tiny little corner of the world, we've touched some lives and made some differences, and made some mistakes, made some big mistakes along the way as well. Like I said, I felt like a traitor because, um, but at that time it was terribly hard. I simply couldn't stand up until everybody, I was still afraid of law enforcement, but those things have changed now. So how have they changed now? Like women, do they uh, speak openly? Or so oh, openly? Not, not, not broader society, no, no. Broader society hasn't really changed. What I mean is um, politics have changed. The laws, um, the racial laws in our country have changed. So if an incident like that would happen now, 
I would feel free to go to the police, the social workers, whoever involved. At that time, I knew the police were in cahoots with the AWB. Okay, so even though those things still exist, you know that the support is out there. Mm -hmm. You went back to South Africa after all your experiences. So don't you want to get out of there or you want to stay in South Africa itself and bring a change? <laughs> um, it, it is quite a challenge. If I could, I, I love this country. I love this country. It's, simply, it's, it's like my mom. It's a place where I was born. And I have high hopes for it. Maybe in two or three or four generations from now, at the moment, things don't look very bright economically or politically but I have a lot of hopes but sometimes I do wish oh can't I just escape to another country but I think um, I'm not a quitter you've got to stay here um, I came back a little bit earlier than I probably would but as you saw in the book that both my parents were sick my mom had cancer my dad was on his death there that forced me to come back earlier but this has always been my place I was forced to leave the country in the first place it's not as if I wanted to <laughs> Right. So, yeah. still your ex, he kind of the, drives around the house or something around some, and troubles you, or does he know you're here or he doesn't like you're cut off like totally? Sorry, I didn't get it. Sorry. Oh, I said, uh, your ex, does he know you're in the country or you're like. Oh, I have no idea. I have no idea. We lost all contact. We got divorced in. Um, 92, in September of 1992, we got divorced and I've never had any contact with him. I've never tried to contact him. I still know where their farm is. It's probably five, six hours drive from Johannesburg. I've never felt like going there. I don't know what he has been up to in the meantime. Like I said, he still stopped by at my parents' place and asked them about me. But I just, I just thought it was harassment. What is he doing there? <laughs> Mm -hmm. Right. So, how do you think people their mentality about the whole situation that goes around with the Black Lives Matters, uh, women empowerment, mm -hmm. all these things? Like, how do you, how are you going to bring it out? Rather than like, already the book is there, but what is the other ways will you work on it? Oh, I haven't really thought beyond the book yet. <laughs> um, but I really don't know. Maybe interviews like this will bring it more in the spotlight because you know what it is like as a self-published author. It's very hard to get word out there. So once my books start um, making headway and more people get to know about it and there are more interviews like this one and it becomes public. But at the moment, I'm just, uh, I haven't thought further than the book. But my opinion about Black Lives Matter, that's another thing in South Africa. Um, a lot of white people here equate a group like the Black Lives Matter movement to the Ku Klux Klan, on the way they say it's also a hate group. And like, you guys are missing the whole point. I don't know how they don't get it. They say all lives matter. Now, a lot of people say that, but my answer to that is like, um, white lives have always mattered. The point is black lives didn't matter for a long, long time. They were supposed to, it's like, the analogy that I, I used to explain it to my friends and people that have that kind of opinion, I tell them it's like, if you were abused by your husband or mistreated or he was an alcoholic and then suddenly he sobers up and he comes home one day and you ask him, do you love me? And he answers, I love everybody. 
You know, you want to know, do you specifically love me? So that's how I feel about Black Lives Matter. We have to say specifically Black Lives Matter too. You say all lives matter. Doesn't address that problem. We were not all left out in the cold. Yeah. So would you like to read a, a favorite passage from your book to the listeners? If you have or a favorite incident you know what i didn't even <laughs> i didn't even bring a print copy into the interview but let me think which is my favorite passage um i think one of my favorites is where benjamin and i meet for the first time in private where we decided okay we're going to start this relationship now and um, we were just there it was very calm nice and loving scene and then suddenly there's that quote from it sounds like it's it's from revelations in the bible with the rider with his swords on the horse and everything i don't know if you know revelations in the bible then all those crazy thoughts came spinning through my mind um and that shows you just how deeply ingrained religious beliefs and our upbringing is and why it's so important to bring up children without this kind of prejudice. Because even though I saw with my own eyes how the lives of the black people were, I was in love with a black man. We were beginning a physical and emotional relationship. And then in that situation, in that moment that was so precious and special, all those crazy thoughts came rushing through my mind. I think that is the pivotal moment that people must see it's easy to judge white people and white people are wrong and being ignorant is wrong. You've got to educate yourself. But the things that have been ingrained into you as a very young child stay with you. It takes a tremendous mind shift to get rid of those things. That's why we need to bring up our kids, you know, in the right way without prejudice. So do you think, uh, like you've named it, uh, in love with the son of Ham, so it's related biblically also because like they say there is a curse uh, that Ham's kids are uh, black. Right? Yes, that's right. I specifically use that son of Ham because, um, like I re uh, refer to the biblical uh, Noah in the Ark, um, Sam, Ham, and Yafet. With it. so that's what I meant. In, in in my culture's eyes, in people of my culture. Um, he was seen as the son of Ham, and I was, um, it was sinful and wrong to have relations with him. Mm -hmm. So before we end it, like what message would you like to give women who are suffering in the same similar situation like yours? How do they uh, get out or how do they like, have that courage to come out of an abusive relationship? Mm -hmm. It's extremely and terribly hard, especially if it was only emotionally um, abusive, because a lot of people, especially in my culture, just see a man hitting his wife or beating her up as being abusive. I think a lot of women suffer emotional abuse and they either close their eyes to it just, you know, because it's too painful to be 100% aware of what's happening to you. So they close their eyes or they're just indoctrinated. Or in a lot of cases, I wouldn't even know what to say to them because, because uh, women were always marginalized in my country, in my society, up until sometime in the 90s. Um, we are financially dependent upon the husband, the provider, the man, especially if you have kids. So um, seek help. Help is out there. 
but still you have to be able to stand on your own two feet you have to be financially able to provide for yourself and your kids because you never know even though the law is there if the guy will actually step up to the plate and provide it's extremely difficult to get out of there uh, in my case like you've seen in the book uh, fortunately and because i was thinking clearly i decided not to bring kids in there but a lot of women in this situation think the man will change if i just give him some children but they never do Thank you so much, Rika, for being with us and getting your message out there. I'll see to it that I can uh, do something so that your voice is heard on another platform as well. And thank you so much for your message and your book. It's really inspirational. Uh, so see you next time. Uh, thank you very much, Mary. It was a pleasure talking to you. Have a good day. Have a Goodbye. good day. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.